Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I want to learn more about what I should think about China. You have some people saying that the economy is improving, uh, that things are looking up in the second biggest economy in the world. Other people are saying, well, they did it with by increasing their debt by 40 percentage points uh, in one year as a, as a proportion of their gross domestic product. To give some insight into this, I want to bring in Tom Orlick, Chief Asia Economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, who is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Tom. China, is it headed for a terrible crash or uh, is it taking a painful steps to move toward a slow and steady recovery? The problems definitely haven't gone away. Uh, as you mentioned, stronger growth in 2016, but very substantially driven by a massive increase in bank lending. Uh, that said, relative to the situation we were in a year ago, when if you remember the equity market was collapsing, FX reserves were slumping and growth was still weak, the latest numbers we've have are a little bit more positive. I want to just pick up just on something uh, that Lisa was talking about having to do with China. Is is it possible to, uh, on the one hand, look at the economy as distinct from the investment uh, outlook? Because I, I'm never able to really reconcile uh, those two things, but also because of the comments by Kyle Bass. What exactly is he is he saying? The country's going to collapse? I think if you look across world, the world's major economies for the last decade, the financial market story and the real economy story has been very firmly detached, right? Um, real economy, US, China, Japan, not looking so great, hasn't necessarily meant that the investment story has always been negative. In China right now, it's a little bit the reverse. The real economy numbers are looking pretty solid, but with these rumblings, these concerns about the unsustainable nature of credit expansion, investors like Carl Bass still don't see this as a good time to go in. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because during 2008, we learned that the real economy and the financial system were uh, perhaps a little bit more intertwined than some people were uh, experiencing. And one concern in China is that with this incredible expansion of credit, you're seeing some uh, cracks that are emerging and some signs that consumers could end up being the ones that are slammed, whether they're taking leverage out to go buy penny shares, uh, essentially, or uh, taking out loans to buy a home. I mean, do you foresee, is there a catalyst on the horizon that could bring these strains and this excessive leverage to a head in China? I think the catalyst could be right here in the US. If we see an accelerated tightening path from the Fed, that's going to mean a tough choice for China's policymakers. Do they follow the dollar up or do they keep the yuan down to retain trade, uh, to retain export competitiveness? If they do the second, the risk is we're going to see very substantial capital outflows that could start crystallizing some of the risks in the financial system, which are the main focus for global investors. As someone that focuses on the economy of uh, China and on Asia, uh, maybe you could speak about the integration of Hong Kong, Taiwan and the Chinese economy and what would happen to those markets, which may be more easily investable for some what would happen to those markets uh, given this Kyle Bass scenario for China? 
Well, my view is that the doomsday scenario for China um, is overplayed. Um, I think that China's policymakers retain considerable policy space, which means we're very unlikely to see a messy unwinding of China's unbalances on a one, two, three-year time horizon. Now, if I'm wrong, and we do see that messy unwinding, if we do see the risks in the financial system crystallizing in the short term, well, if that happens, you can forget about Hong Kong and Taiwan. Um, it's like the, all bets are off at that point, right? And it becomes almost a, a really political issue. The ripple effects would just go much wider. Um, you'd feel them across all of Asia. You'd feel them here in the US and in Europe. You know, you're based in China, and you have a good look on the ground at the sentiment. Over here, when President Trump uh, basically uh, shafted the Trans-Pacific Partnership and, and pulled the U.S. out of it, there was this feeling that China could potentially move as the big economic power in the region and gain strength as a result of this. What's your perspective? What's the perspective from Beijing? Um I think there's certainly a lot of nervousness in Beijing about what the Trump administration is talking about. Um, now, at a very surface level, if the US reduces its trade and security commitments to the Asia-Pacific region, clearly China, as the region's largest economy, is going to see an expansion of its influence. And we're already seeing that in the South China Sea. We're seeing it in more infrastructure spending by Chinese firms in Southeast Asia. The question, though, is, is that a positive or a negative for China? My view is that China's been benefiting by free riding on the U.S. security guarantee and the U.S. guarantee of open markets. If that's taken away, that's going to be more of a cost than a benefit to China. Can you give us just a quick uh, primer on what that security benefit is? Uh, well, it's a it's a very big picture. It's a very big picture analysis. Um, but the U.S. security guarantee, including troops in Japan, including troops in Korea, that's underwritten the peace and security of the Asia region. It's underwritten the freedom of shipping around the region. And China, as the world's biggest trading nation, has benefited from that peace and security. Just quickly, uh, the controls that are on place on companies in China to invest money outside the country. Uh, the state administration of foreign exchange has asked these companies with outbound investment plans to clarify the source of their funding for purchases and give additional details on their spending plans. So this would mean that if a company like a Foxconn wants to expand and build a plant in the United States, that they would have to make sure that the Chinese government knew the details of what they wanted to do with the money. This is all about the difficult decision China has to make on managing the yuan and managing cross-border capital flows. Basically, they've got a choice. They could allow the yuan to float, which would be a good market-based solution. Ultimately, it would end the problem of capital outflows, but it would be a really high-risk solution. If they don't want to allow the yuan to float, and at the moment they don't seem to, they have to find some way to stem the capital outflows. And that policy move you just described to make it tougher for corporates to take their funds out of China, that's a move in that direction. Well done. Thank you very much. Very interesting. We look forward to having you on more in the future because this is obviously a topic that is only going to gain in importance. Tom Orlick is our chief Asia economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He is based in Beijing and he joins us here in our studios here in New York.
Motor Company, the major Detroit auto company that has been the target of quite a bit of attention from our new president. It just uh, reported earnings that were below analyst estimates, and the shares are falling uh, almost 3%. I want to bring in Bob Shanks, executive vice president and chief financial officer of Ford. Uh, thank you for joining us. So what do you think is the most important thing that investors should take away from this earnings report? Uh, well, we were in line with uh, Bloomberg and, and first call at 30 cents a share in the quarter. Uh, what I would take away from it is the, the strength of the results um, across many parts of our business. We came in with our second best profit for the full year, our second best operating margin, our second best cash flow. So it was very strong. And within that, we had a strong North America, a record profit in in Europe, uh, second best profit in Asia Pacific, and solid profits at Ford Credit. So to me, it was the strength of the result and the consistency of earnings over you know, a seven-year period. So I think it was quite uh, a quite strong result for the company, frankly. One, one interesting note was that uh, Ford took a $200 million charge uh, as a result of closing the factory, abandoning the factory in Mexico as a result of some of the uh, discussions with President Trump. Does this bode poorly for the road ahead and how the relationship of the company will be uh, with the new president? No, I don't think so at all. And and the reason that we canceled the plant is from the time that uh, we had made the decision to do it, we saw small vehicles were going to go into the plant, small cars specifically. And and what we uh, saw was continued and, in fact, accelerated the decline in customer demand for those segments. So I think it was that primarily. And then with the pro-growth policies that we expect the new administration uh, to put in place ultimately, uh, you know, that really made us uh, comfortable with the decision, despite the fact that uh, we had just started overall development of the site. So there is a charge associated with it, but we feel very, very good about the plan that we have going forward. And, and as Mark said, Mark Fields, our CEO, a number of times um, this week following his two meetings with Mr. Trump, I think he, we're very encouraged by uh, the, the pro-growth uh, attitude and, and um, uh, um bent of, of the administration. We just have to wait and see what the specific policies will be. Hey, you know, Bob, I, I just wanted to make, make mention that uh, you've had a long career at Ford. Uh, you were at Ford Motor, but also you did Mazda Motor, uh, you know, and, and now as the, uh, the chief financial officer. You've, you've survived a lot in the automobile industry. And uh, I wonder if you could speak from that perspective uh, to, um, did you think that you and Mark thought that this is the kind of stuff that you would be focused on now compared to, let's say, what uh, Alan Mulally uh, w had to do? Because these are very different times, not only for your business, but interestingly, uh, for your relationship uh, with uh, with Washington. <laughs> you make my career sound like I just was the most horrible thing anyone could go through. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not horrible, but I mean, in other words, you've been there, you've witnessed this, right? I mean, come on, this is this is what actually happened. Well, you know, what, but it's a great point that you're making. I mean, one of the things that is really exciting, but also something you have to deal with and learn how, from a governance standpoint, and just how you run these businesses, they are so big and they're so complicated and they're so affected by literally everything that happens around the world. And you're right. I mean, now is a different era than when Alan was here, and I worked with Alan. That was a restraint. Structuring. Now we're into you know stabilizing the business at a high level and then growing, particularly in areas that are going to be brand new, not only to us but the whole sector, enabled by technology. So it's a completely different focus there. And then, as you said, we've got a new administration. I mean, you, could, you probably couldn't have a, 
you know, a sharper right turn or left turn, whichever way you want to characterize it from the prior administration. Um, it, it looks positive so far in terms of how everyone feels uh, the direction of the administration in terms of pro-growth policies, but we don't have details yet. So we'll, we'll, the, the thing that's positive, though, is that we're engaged in the dialogue and the conversation with the administration, with Congress. And uh, so I, I think we feel that we're, you know, we're part of that conversation and then we feel good about that. In Ford's earnings, uh, the company reiterated guidance that earnings will drop this year as it begins to invest about $4.5 billion uh, toward electronification and uh, and spending on self-driving vehicles. Mm-hmm. In this kind of environment, how many new jobs can, a, can Ford really create in the U.S.? Well, that's a good question, too. We've created, uh, you know, quite a number of jobs. I think it's 28,000, I think, is the number that's in the top of my head over the last five years and in the United States alone. Uh, I think going forward, these new emerging opportunities represent uh, not only big opportunities for us, but potentially opportunities, too, in terms of providing, you know, great jobs for people, not only here in the U.S., but elsewhere in the world. So, uh, but the, the thing I guess I would say, um, Pim, is that you know a lot of that though will be, you know, or I'm sorry, Lisa, will be further out in in, in the future uh, in terms of the benefit to us because if you think about what we're talking about, autonomous vehicle coming in 2021, electrification, uh, the point in time where that is going to make economic sense is versus an internal combustion engine probably in the next decade. So we have to keep, you know, we have to move in that direction, but think about the pace of that. And uh, a lot of the mobility services that we believe we can offer in the future, you know, we're just creating and working on right now. So that 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 future is ahead of us, and we're excited about it, and I do think it will generate job opportunities. Hey, Bob, uh, can you speak to the, um, the issue of uh, used cars and leases and mm-hmm. the whole financing? Because mm-hmm. we've been uh, speaking with a variety of people. Uh, and, you know, you start off saying, OK, more people are doing leases, uh, but uh, now there's going to be a flood of used car mm-hmm. on the market. And that's going to hurt prices. We saw, you know, uh, Hertz got hit with, a, uh, with that the other day. Could you just ex- uh, give us your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's another important uh, aspect of the business that's occurring right now. And and just to level set you, first of all, in terms of Ford Credit's own uh, participation in that, it uh, for the year, uh, for the full year, we came in at 22% in terms of mix of um, participation in the lease. That's exactly the same as it was uh, the year prior, and I think roughly the same as the year before that. So we haven't, we have not moved up in terms of the degree to which we're. Um, we're leasing at least through Ford Credit. The industry is, though. Uh, it, it moved from 28% uh, in 15 to 30% this year, and you're right. As you know, think about higher leasing and the industry sales have been increasing. So there is a large number of uh, lease, uh, off-lease vehicles that will be coming back to the market uh, over the next several years. That is affecting used vehicle uh, prices uh, through the auctions. It certainly has had an impact on our lease portfolio at Ford Credit. So it's not just us, because again, we haven't participated in that growth to that degree, uh, but it's the broader industry. And I think that's probably one of the signs that would suggest, you know, that we are getting in the latter part of the uh, the economic cycle that we're in. So in response to that, what we've done is, uh, you know, we have limited uh, the degree to which we're going to be uh, leasing uh, to around that level that I just mentioned. All right. And uh, looking at other alternatives. We've got to leave it there. Thanks very much. We've got to run Bob Shanks. He is the chief financial officer of Ford.
Should it be stocks? Should it be bonds? What should you be doing with your money? Peter Anderson is the chief investment officer and the vice president of fiduciary trust based in Boston. Always a pleasure, Peter. Uh, I was looking at a comparison between the uh, dividend yield on the S&P 500 of about 2.04% to be precise, right? So 2% on the S&P of 500. But then when I look and I say, oh, 10-year, the 10-year Treasury is uh, more than 2.5%. It's 2.54%. What do you say to that? Boy, there's so much to be uh, talking about at this point, Pam. You know, right now, there is so much news happening uh, from the Trump administration that um, people seem to be suspending any kind of analytics, uh, especially the question that you're just asking, you know, what is what does that tell us right now? And I would tell you that for the past two to three weeks, I think there is so much data coming in that nobody has the wherewithal to actually make any analytic statements at this point. It's a highly unusual period in this rolling disclosure that we have of new Trump policies and trying to adjust that into the market really doesn't seem to be um, calibrating at all. And it's a highly unusual time. Given that backdrop, do you still think that rotating out of fixed income and into equities uh, could likely be a doomed strategy, as you suggested in your recent report? Well, not necessarily doomed. I I think that there's always a place for fixed income, Lisa, and uh, especially this time of of the period of the cycle. uh, Most people would probably say, well, it's like sticking your hand into an open flame at this point because, of course, all of us have a bias toward raising uh, that rates will be increasing. But even if that's the case, you still need a buffer. We don't really know how many of these policies are actually going to be implemented. And let's just take a a position where we think that maybe not all of them will be. Then the market is so sensitive right now, the equity market, that I could see that trading off. And if you're left totally in equities, then it doesn't really give you any kind of a buffer capability. So fixed income, especially high-grade fixed income, in spite of the fact that rates are rising, you always need to have some amount of exposure, I think, just to be prudent. Um, I've been reading a lot of investment reports that have been coming out, and one theme consistent throughout has been that there are fatter tails on either end. In other words, the worst-case scenarios are worse and the yep. better-case scenarios are better. Yep. What's your worst-case scenario and best-case scenario for 2017? Well, of course, I think, you know, being apolitical in this discussion, I think the best-case scenario, if you're just looking at the markets and uh, you're trying to get the best returns, would be that the majority of the policies that are being presented would be adopted. And uh, longer term, that's debatable. But if you're looking at for uh, 2017, 2018, say for the next three years, I do think the best scenario for a lot of industries would be for the Trump policies to come into play. The worst case scenario would be perhaps if none of these are in play and uh, everybody has to go back to their Bloomberg terminals and reassess the outlook that we have gotten so used to, I would say in over six weeks now, we are very used to adopting, uh, you know, in, in our an analytic process, that most of these uh, policies will come through and improving cash flows, et cetera. There could be really a negative scenario easily painted if uh, none of these things is passed. 
Well, Peter, you know, we, I kind of put you in a, in a tough position because we started at such a general yeah. level, you know, bonds sure, versus yeah, versus yeah. stocks. Maybe just share with people a little bit of your specific background in terms of the investments that you have made and yeah. your rationale for these investments, because I think this speaks to an issue of active versus passive management because you have such an idiosyncratic moment yes. that it is very hard to use any kind of analytical system. It now relies on personal experience, and I'm wondering if you would share that with us. It, it, it exactly does. And I mean, uh, Pim, if you look at the volatility index, for instance, the VIX, tremendously low at this point, correlations low, uh, yet we, normally I think we all three of us would agree if there were any singular surprises like we've had, you know, collectively now, but I've just picked one of these announcements. Normally, the markets would respond immediately and would take a, quite a while to work that through the system of rationality. But there are so many surprises that I think the, the you know, we're in, we're suffering from indigestion in the sense that we cannot do that. So here's what I, we recommend is that you have to step back and you have to say, what is the baseline? You know, there's a lot of noise and hopefully the noise will become facts. But right now, you can say to yourself, is there a baseline of investment philosophy that I believe in? And can I pick securities based on the intrinsic, you know, attractiveness of the of these stocks, for instance? And on top of that, if you can find uh, tailwinds that they might enjoy as a result of favorable findings on these policies, then you've got a double. But right now, we're just looking for singles. So let me just give you a quick example. I mean, I'm only going to give you 10 seconds okay. here. Okay. Key Bank, for instance. Take a look at that because that has a basic fundamentals are very attractive. And if Trump's policies go through with uh, infrastructure spending, then it will actually be even a better stock. Thank you so much for joining us. Peter Anderson, Chief Investment Officer and Vice President of Fiduciary Trust in Boston. bet they also know the new Commerce Secretary of the United States, Wilbur Ross, uh, nominated to be uh, Commerce Secretary by President Trump. Here to tell us more, Max Abelson, finance reporter, Bloomberg News. You can follow him on Twitter at Max Abelson. Okay, at Max Abelson. Tell us about this story. I, I read it and I got my own thoughts, but you, you tell us what you laid out for people. Pim, thank you. So, you know, Bloomberg News has spent a lot of time over the last few weeks talking about the $6 billion cabinet, and there's a lot of folks on people like Steven Mnuchin, who I wrote a profile of with Zach Miter a couple months ago, or uh, you know, really almost anyone has, has gotten more attention than, than the richest man of them all, Wilbur Ross. He's a private equity executive, as I'm sure our listeners know. He was an investment banker for decades. And considering that he's going to have responsibility to fulfill some of the more populist promises from Trump on the campaign trail, promises about jobs and manufacturing and trade, even infrastructure, we thought it would make sense to take a look at Adam and, uh, and his career. So, Max, just from a big picture perspective, what power does the Secretary of Commerce really have? Lisa, that's a good question because historically the answer is, at least relatively, not much. Um, this didn't make it into the piece, actually, but, you know, there was a uh, there's a commerce secretary under Reagan who died because he was roping steer while he was uh, while he was commerce secretary. Then there was a, a commerce secretary, Ron Brown, under Clinton, who died a, a, in an airplane crash. Um, and then actually after that happened, um, Obama 
tried to sort of reshuffle the entire structure of commerce and USTR so that the commerce secretary might have actually gone away. But Wilbur Ross is going to be important, and he's going to be important because he had Donald Trump's ear. They've known each other since about 1990 when Wilbur Ross actually helped save Trump at the Trump Taj Mahal. He was uh, representing bondholders. Um, and he's going to be important because he's going to have um, some real muscle when it comes to being in charge of uh, trade stuff. And he's already had input into these sort of uh, these proposals for public-private uh, infrastructure funding. Well, Max, why don't you tell us some details about Wilbur Ross? What did you discover? So the complicated thing about Wilbur, uh, and the reason you have to go back... Did he speak with you for this story? No, actually, I had been emailing... Because um, he's been interviewed... Oh, he on pr- up until recently, he's a man who loves the press. But uh, I got an email back from his assistant who said, please do not contact anyone at W.L. Ross or anyone who's ever worked here. And then afterwards, I got an email with recommendations uh, of people they did want me to talk to. And it was like literally like billionaires and uh, political leaders, um, some of whom I, I did end up uh, talking to. But just Lisa, to go to answer your excellent question uh, and going back in time. The reason Wilbur Ross is a rich man, um, to overgeneralize, is that he was a steel magnate. And he was a steel magnate um, right as tariffs were coming in. This is like, think, like 2002, 2003. But the real um, – the, fa- the fascinating thing is that, of course, if you're a U.S. steel magnate, you're basically a protectionist. You don't like steel coming in from other countries. So, of course, he was a protectionist then. But then he sold it to uh, an Indian billionaire, sold his steel holdings, and he became a textiles magnate. And then all of a sudden, he became a free trader. And he uh, did projects in China and Vietnam, even Nicaragua. Um, But of course, we know what's happened in the last year. He's become, with Peter Navarro, a sort of anti-China voice. So one of the things that the the piece follows is how he's flipped you know, several times over his career, which which is something that businessmen do. It's just, of course, in politics, that's it's sort of frowned upon. Well, I want to pick up on that very theme, Max, because uh, when you described Wilbur Ross and his prowess in business, it would occur to me that if you're thinking of running an enterprise as a business, this is someone that you would want on your team because they know how to succeed at the business. I, when, when you say that, I'm reminded of an anecdote that I that I heard from uh, a, a leader of Amalgamated Bank, which is a, a, a sort of a real, almost literally like an Occupy Wall Street bank. They, they, I think Occupy Wall Street really did bank with with Amalgamated, whatever savings it, it had. And Wilbur Ross in 2012 invested 50, about 50 million dollars. W.L. Ross did into Amalgamated. And Ed Grebo, who was a CEO at the time, remembers like waking up and watching on business television, Wilbur Ross sort of, uh, you know, railing against, uh, you know, for example, he was supportive of Mitt Romney. And he was actually even publicly supportive of Mitt Romney's claim that 47 percent of Americans are freeloaders. Remember that? Wilbur Ross supported him. And, and Ed Grebo remembers sort of like watching him at six in the morning on business TV, uh, you know, being sort of a Mitt Romney supporter. And then at nine, they'd meet for a breakfast meeting and Wilbur Ross would be completely supportive of Amalgamated Bank. And, you know, you might come – you might listen to an anecdote like that depending on your perspective and think, well, that's like hypocrisy. Or if you're a businessman, you could say – or a business person, you would say, yeah, that, that's, what a, that's, that's what it's all about. You're just supposed to maximize profits and, and not worry about anything else. Max Abelson, thank you so much for joining us. Truly tremendous story. Uh, Definitely I recommend the read. Max Abelson, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, here with us in the Bloomberg 1130 studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.
I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.